episode of Fragments of Fear, a podcast dedicated to the discussion and appreciation of the lesser celebrated Jolly. I'm Rachel Nisbet and here with me is my co-host, Peter Eamstall. So I have to say I'm very excited about our inaugural episode and I think we've chosen the perfect film to discuss and hopefully our podcast converts a few of you into fans or simply encourages you to seek this film out because we'd both love to see it get a bit more recognition. Yeah, we definitely do. I mean, I think we both can see why some people don't bring it up when they talk about Jelly, but we feel that it's a solid, underappreciated thriller that deserves further discussion and quite a few interesting points that can be made definitely. Uh, in regards to this film. So that's what we, we hope to do over the course of this podcast. Um, yeah, it's just really about kind of um, highlighting these films that you might not have come across before or that for whatever reason are maligned or underappreciated. So I'd firstly like to say that there will be spoilers in this podcast. So if you haven't seen the film in question, we'd encourage you to source yourself a copy and give it a watch. And then you can come back to us and give us a listen because we'd hate to spoil anything for you. So we've put out an episode zero, which is an introduction to our podcast. Um, but I thought for those of you who want to skip over it, I'd briefly outline what we're all about here on Fragments of Fear. So Peter and I conceived this podcast with a shared vision of covering Shally that often aren't written or podcasted about. Uh, we felt people were perhaps missing out on certain films due to them not having a proper release, or films have been released but don't have much of a profile, or simply Shally that perhaps attract negativity for various reasons, like not conforming to certain genre tropes. So the podcast is very much a way of us bringing focus to these films or reappraising and looking at films in a new light that are often just not talked about in a particularly in-depth way. So for that reason, we've decided to focus our first episode on. Peter? We've decided to talk about Armando Crispino's 1975 giallo Machia Solari or Autopsy. Enter the chamber of terror. Watch every corner because this is where the dead become the living. Ah! Autopsy. Should we start talking about the director, Armando Crispino? Yeah, that's a good place to start. I think just give a wee bit of background before we delve into the film. He's one of the Jello directors who only made one or two titles with Bazzoni, Leonardo, Miraglia who all made interesting thrillers but didn't make all that many of them. But Crispino was born in Biella in Piemonte in 1925 and he got his start as a film critic at uh, L'Unità in Turin at the end of the 40s. He was a big film lover and especially loved John Ford and Hitchcock. He entered the film business as um, an assistant director in the 1950s and collaborated extensively with Antonio Pietrangeli. And over time, he gained reputation as a skilled collaborator. So he did quite a few social documentaries as well as promotional films for different companies, including Fiat. He got to know the screenwriter Lucio Battistrada in 1958, and the two wrote quite a few scripts together. Crispino directed eight films in total and several several of them were written with Battistrada. He's got quite a diverse filmography for somebody who's only made eight features. He's done historic comedy uh, with 1966 uh, Le Piacere Notti. He made a spaghetti western, John the Bastard in 1967 and Commandos in 1968. Uh, that's the one Argento was involved in, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. Argento had a hand in the in the script. According to Alan Jones's book on Argento, it doesn't seem like it was a great time for Argento. Uh, but he, as I said, he only had a, a small hand in the script there. But then in 1972, he made one of his most famous films, Letrusco Uccidi Ancora, or The Etruscan Kills Again, a giallo, and it was a big box office hit. And it made 953 million at the box office, which doesn't really say that much. And I haven't spent time working out how much that would be in today's money. But if you compare it to other titles that were released at the time, it outperformed Fellini's Roma. It also performed better than Dalemano's What Have You Done to Solange and uh, Miralia's The Red Queen Kills Seven Times. And the only giallo that performed better that year was Lucio Fulci's Don't Torture Duckling, which made um, roughly one billion at the box office. I mean, that's really just uh, quite incredible when you think about that, because I would never have guessed that it was that popular a film, because um, by um, modern standards and circles of Italian cinema fans, like it's just not mentioned that much. So I think that serves as a reminder that our perception of these films is often somewhat removed from the reality of when they were released. Um, just because a giallo is considered to be popular now, it doesn't mean it was the most successful of its time in Italy. 
which is evident um, from those fascinating box office figures you've produced. Um, it's yeah. quite interesting to speculate, I guess, on why that is. Yeah, I think a lot of it has got to do with the availability over the last decade or two decades on DVD and Blu-ray. I think a lot of fans know about it, but not how successful it was. And mm-hmm. I, I had a quick look at the box office figures from like the early 70s when the Jolly was the most popular. And the only people that made more money uh, at the box office was Argento and Fulci. So this was like one of the highest grossing jelly that was screened during the, the early half of, of the 1970s. Wow, that's quite incredible. Quite surprising. Yeah. yeah, we're not going to talk that much about the Etruscan kills again at this time because it's one of those films that I could see us returning to at some point do you yeah. agree? Yeah definitely I think that's one that we'll um, come back to because I think it's both of Crispino's and works in the genre are really worthy of discussion Yeah I agree. So after that he made um, a film called La Badessa di Castro which is not a non-exploitation uh, film but it, it's more of a drama set in a convent and it's got exploitation elements but it's more towards the drama side it starts Barbara Boucher and uh, other Jalla regular Pierre Paolo Capone, and that didn't fare as well at the box office. Okay. If you look at the time when Autopsy came along, it was it was sort of made at the tail end of I guess we'd call it the golden era. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Of the Jalla, and it'd been overtaken by the Poliziotteschi and the sexy comedies as the most popular and profitable genres. And 1973 and 1974 had been fairly quiet years in terms of, of Jallo. And uh, Autopsy opened in January 1975. So it was, it was sort of one of those in-between films. It was after the big boom of 1971 and 1972 and before Profondo Rosso opened uh, in March the same year. Like Argento, Crispino started off as a as a critic, and um, I think it's quite interesting when you look at Italian genre cinema directors and their background. How these films are sometimes perceived as as shock or cinema that's not worth very much. And when you look at the backgrounds of these directors, they're often quite well read, quite cultured people. And I think you noticed as well in the film the the references to to um, photographers and architects, mm-hmm. which I think is interesting and which is not something that you would associate with schlock cinema. I mean, well, it's certainly interesting that um, many of these directors did come from an intellectual background. Um, as you said, these people were certainly intelligent uh, with various ideas and references peppered throughout their films. And I think Crispino's interest in Italian history comes across as well in the Etruscan Kills Again. And there's certainly that interest in mythology and ancient Italian history. So it it does demonstrate that these people um, were well-read and they were making something that perhaps was seen as a bit pulpy or schlocky by today's standards. But they wanted to express these other ideas and show another side of themselves. So to dismiss these films as complete trash or Euro trash or schlock is maybe a bit of a, a disservice to these people who were perhaps trying to put something else in their work. I know, I completely agree with that. Yeah. I think Crispino as well was interesting because he, since he moved between different genres as well, he wasn't content in in just doing one type of cinema. From what I've read, it doesn't seem like it was just a commercial necessity. He did want to sort of work in different genres. It It wasn't just because they were popular. The story behind Autopsy is apparently he got the idea from from visiting a morgue in New York in the early 1970s, crime film that was planned but not produced. And he also drew inspiration from that visit and from an article about suicide rates going up in Rome during the hot months of the summer. So that's what inspired it. And uh, him and uh, Lucio Battistrada had written early drafts of this film in early 1972. The first one was called Undicesimo Non Suicidare, which means basically the 11th commandment, do not suicide, and non suicidare il prossimo tu, uh, do not suicide the next man. And after a non-start with another producer, the film ended up with Leonardo Pescarolo and Claudio Cinematografica Films. They started filming uh, on July 15th, 1974 in Rome and shot throughout August. 
So as we've already discussed, Autopsy was released in 1975. And at this point in the mid 70s, we see quite a drastic decline in the number of Shelley being produced. I'm in favour of other more popular genres such as the Italian crime film. So at this stage, the Shelley we are seeing often play a bit more with form. Um, some of them encompass more crime film style elements, uh, good examples of which would be What Have They Done To Your Daughters and Plot of Fear. Other films such as Strip Nude For Your Killer and Eyeball take on an increasingly salacious tone, which is a trend that continues till the end of the decade. Then we have films like Autopsy Itself, The Pajama Girl Case, The House of the Laughing Windows and The Killer Must Kill Again, which play around more with form and that are sometimes viewed as non-traditional jalo or not jalo at all. Also, it's worth mentioning, as you mentioned prior, 1975's Deep Bread by Dario Argento. It's somewhat of an anomaly in that it was hugely successful and is considered nowadays as one of the best examples of the genre. However, if you look at the films released in its wake, there aren't actually too many films that try and replicate its success. And many of the Shelley were moving away from that Argento style template, although there were, of course, still some such as Watch Me When I Kill. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that. Watch Me When When I Kill is the film that's the most clearly inspired by Argento's masterpiece, I'd say. It feels like he's the Argento template. And even things like the music and whatever. Yeah. And there's something about the kills as well that sort of reminds me uh, of it. But I can't really think of any other films, like you said, that really tries to emulate uh, Profondo Rosso. When people ask me for Jalo recommendations, I actually tend to avoid listing autopsy simply because it seems to defy opinion. Um, as I've just mentioned, it's one of those films that some consider to not be a traditional example of Jalo. Perhaps if you're going into the film with that expectation, uh, you'd be disappointed. It doesn't adhere to that Agatha Christie, Ten Little Indian style narrative. There's no black glove killer dispatching a bevy of attractive women in various states of undress in violent and stylistic ways. Um, And although the violence is at times fairly gruesome, Crispino often depicts the aftermath of these deaths rather than the deaths themselves, which lends itself to a fairly detached, almost at times, medical approach to death, which mirrors the clinical aspect of autopsy. As well, in my experience, one of the reasons people gravitate towards Shelley is that there's a certain style to these films, and I wouldn't necessarily say that Autopsy subscribes to that style that we're familiar with in Shelley. Um, And that's perhaps another reason why it doesn't always resonate with fans of the genre. No, it, it's kind of easy to see why somebody expecting a, a black-clad killer in a straight racer would come away slightly disappointed from this and say that mm-hmm. that's not a giallo. But um, the Italians have got a slightly different definition of the genre than, than most people outside Italy yeah completely yeah and their definition is so much wider and the sort of non-Italian definition is quite narrow so I would say this definitely falls into giallo but like you've said there are quite a few boxes that aren't being ticked if you want by the numbers giallo yeah and I think if you're coming to the genre wanting to tick as many boxes as possible yeah you're probably going to stay away from the likes of autopsy and some of those other films we've mentioned because they're not going to fulfill those requirements that you want but in actual fact you know discovering these jelly that are perhaps off the beaten track you might actually find that you appreciate those elements and it brings something different because i presume if you watch a lot of these back to back um of that similar tenless Indian style um narrative you might end up feeling a bit i won't say bored but it becomes a bit formulaic doesn't it so it's nice when something yeah. throws a spanner in the works Exactly. Yeah, this is something completely different and yes. very interesting, I think. Just because it's it's much more about the characters here. It's not just about the murders. Like you said, it, it, it doesn't show any of the murders. You see, no. there's not really any gruesome aftermath of the murders, but there there's plenty of other gruesome imagery. It's very interesting and very different in that way. Yeah, completely. And I just, while we're on the, sub, uh, on the subject, I want to make clear as well in this podcast that we might refer to films as Shelley that you might disagree with, or we might not consider films Shelley that you do. I'm sure you're already thinking of certain films, Peter, on this one. Um, and it's a highly contentious issue, and there's arguments to be made on either side. And we don't want to get into these hot-headed debates about it. Um, I think going into this, and I'll let Peter come in here as well if, um, in a moment, our criteria for a shallow is an Italian produced or co-produced thriller post Mario Bava's The Girl Who Knew Too Much. But yeah, we're trying to stay away from films that might be seen as shallow adjacent um, or like neo Jali or what people sometimes dub as American Jali, which we're yeah, completely staying away from. Um, 
so yeah, that's the criteria that we're working for. But we may have scope in the future to discuss these adjacent films. I think, oh, I hope so. I, I hope we will. And I think we're both quite open to what people will consider Jalo, apart then from possibly Suspiria, <laughs> which will just, will, will die on that hill <laughs> claiming that it's not a Jalo. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we really we're we're happy to hear what what people consider Shelley and what they don't. Uh, like I said, we don't want to get into these angry debates about it. Um, I think yeah, it's up to the individual to make their own decisions about it. Obviously, there's certain ones we disagree with, but there are no rigid rules. There's there's lots of elements in these films that one can argue is intrinsic to the genre or discounts it completely. Um, so we've slightly devi- deviated here, thanks to me, um, but we thought it was just worth examining. Um, where the Italian thriller was at the stage um, and talking a little bit about um, our own thoughts on what constitutes an Italian thriller. Um, and, per- and that's perhaps to emphasise why Autopsy isn't akin to the Shelley that were inspired and directly came after The Bird with the Crystal Plumage. Uh, so I guess we'll now properly delve into the film and give you a quick reminder of what it's about. Yeah, let's just read the synopsis of the, the old Anchor Bay DVD. When the city of Rome is rocked by a wave of violent suicides, a young forensic pathologist, Mimsy Farmer, racked by hallucinations of the living dead, and a priest, Barry Primus, running from his dark past, begin an investigation. Together, they uncover a deadly secret and a chilling slab of unspeakable horror. So in many ways, it's impossible to talk about this film without discussing the opening. Would you agree? Yeah, definitely. I think the opening is one of the most memorable memorable moments of the film. So it's definitely worthy of discussion because it really sets up the film's ideas and the differences in this shallow compared to some of the others. Autopsy opens with a rather stark but particularly memorable series of images. Uh, we cut to several scenes that depict suicide from a woman slashing her wrists to an elderly man suffocating himself with a plastic bag over his head. Um, there's a car explosion and in the worst scene, in my opinion, two dead children lying face down on a bed as presumably their father turns a gun on himself. I'd argue the most harrowing opening I've seen in the genre, um, actually, especially seeing the little girl covered in blood with her hand tying down clutching a doll. It signifies straight away that autopsy is a far cry from the stylistic violent jelly you're perhaps more familiar with. And this clinical style gore appears fairly often throughout the film. Um, And on a personal level, it's had a particularly lasting impression on me. It's always the scene I think of when I think of this film. It's a scene that I think of quite frequently just in regards to the genre as a whole, Um, just due to how shocking and real to life it feels. And it takes on this almost documentary style. I agree that the imagery with the dead children is, uh, like I said, it's harrowing and unusual even for like Italian exploitation films to bring it that far along because sometimes you're shown like a, an arm dropping or something like that or you can tell by a ball running down some stairs uh, or yeah. something that, that a child has been killed. But this is fairly full on and it grabs your attention straight away, doesn't it? Yeah, to see their bodies, like the actual corpses of the children, it's I think it's shocking still by today's standards. I think people are very, rightfully so, sensitive about um, child murder, especially in this yeah. kind of suicide context. Yeah. Um, and we were both talking about, before we started recording, about that this sequence reminds us of a sequence from another more recent film. <laughs> Which you might be... <laughs> get into that? <laughs> Which you might be surprised over. Um so it's a, it's a funny one because you said it to me and I was completely dumbfounded because I couldn't believe that you'd said this as well because I thought I was clutching at straws with this one. Um, so it reminded us both of Dario Argento's Mother of Tears. There are a couple of sequences in Mother of Tears which signify the fall of Rome and there are people being assaulted and I think there's somebody being pushed off a bridge yeah, or jumping off a bridge. a baby or something as well. And... Yeah, Crispino managed to to sort of portray this in a very effective way and Argento didn't in this particular instance I would say would you agree with that I definitely agree with you I echo what you've said in regards to this idea that Rome's being gripped by the seemingly uncontrollable force that appears to be causing mass panic in the form of these gruesome suicides in a way that yeah Argento tries to do with more overt violence like people assaulting each other or random goss hanging around train stations as a, <laughs> a, a signal of the end of days um 
but it's an effective in a way that Mother of Tears wasn't just because it, it really hammers home that idea of the collapse of civilization um, and what yeah. more could be an indicator than of a crumbling city than the residents killing themselves and their loved ones to escape yeah. the perceived horrors of the world. So I think it's just it's just handled in a much better way. It's less overt, but that's why it works. So, should we talk a little bit about the main plays of the film? Yeah, that sounds good. Simona is the central character of Autopsy, and she's very much the focus of the film. Originally, Simona was to have been portrayed by Barbara Ruslanova, which is quite surprising because Mimsy Farmer's performance just seems so integral to the success of the film. Um, but she was replaced by Mimsy Farmer, who was convinced to take the role by her husband, Vincenzo Carami, who was a screenwriter and good friend of Lucio Battistrata. And Farmer's involvement worked out incredibly well because she had previous success within the horror thriller genres. Um, and she played similarly unstable characters in Argento's Four Flies on Grey Velvet and Borelli's The Perfume of the Lady in Black. Yeah, and it's it's a brilliant piece of casting from that point of view because in some ways, just by casting her, there's a, an element of misdirection from Crispino because as a viewer, if you'd seen Four Flies on Grey Velvet, and the perfume of the lady in black you sort of assume that she's going to be mentally unstable or that she's not completely to be trusted so i think it worked out really well in terms of casting and she was probably the best actress of uh, the early 70s of portraying that vulnerable slightly on the edge of insanity type woman would you agree yeah i definitely agree with you on that and i think she brings something almost otherworldly to her um roles um, and there's, she gives, she always delivers quite a layered performance. Like you say, she does that women on the edge, um, vulnerable, but possessing some sort of a quiet power. Um, and I think she just has something about her that a lot of the other actresses in the genre don't. Yeah. And she's, she can be quite, she's quite sympathetic as well as, um, as an actress. Um, I think if another actress is in a role like this, she probably wouldn't be able to carry it off as well. She might just come across as a bit hysterical rather than, someone who's neurotic but you know like you feel sympathetic to why she's that way or you feel like there's something under the surface yeah the only other actress that i could see really putting it off convincingly would be florinda balkan oh of course yeah no that's a really good point i wouldn't have even thought about her in this film because yeah she did something somewhat similar in footprints in the moon yeah i'm sure you exactly. could compare those characters in a, a character study yeah we'll, we'll return to simona's character later on but just to present the rest of the plays, we've also got Father Paul Lennox, played by Barry Primus. We think he sounds like a car. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't have much of a career in in uh, in Italy. I think this was the only film that he made in Italy. Yeah, he's certainly more of an American actor, isn't he? I think he has more American name recognition. I mean, I'd never heard of him prior to this film. No, I would I would have to agree with you on that one. Yeah. So he plays um, the priest, Father Lennox, a former race car driver who's responsible for killing spectators during a race and he turned to religion after that and in the film he's searching for his sister's killer. I really liked Father Lennox's characterization autopsy especially his struggle between the church and the temptations of the flesh it's quite interesting that he has that those past demons and this past profession as a racing car driver because it's not what you would obviously expect and interestingly he's quite hot-headed despite being a man of the cloth he obviously has these carnal desires and he gives into his baser instincts in a way that you wouldn't expect but also despite being priest he doesn't really have much of a savior complex either so i think him and simona complement each other quite well and i think that farmer and primus have fairly good chemistry together yeah i agree with that i think they work well together he's also seeking some kind of redemption isn't he mm -hmm, both for the accident and his feeling of guilt over his sister's death as well because he i think he even says that it was my own advice that killed her yeah yeah it, re it really brings something to his character that you wouldn't perhaps see um with priests in, in the shallow he's not no, ex he's not um, exactly yeah typical and that's that's the other thing in terms of if we're talking about what what Mimsy brought to the role, um, 
in this case, it's what the the character brings to a 1975 Jallo, because by this time, you know that if you see a priest in a Jallo, nine times out of ten, he will be the killer. <laughs> you know, I've actually got a quote here um, from cinematographer Gian Lorenzo um, Battaglia, which he said in his audio commentary for Formula for a Murder, which, as you know, is another murderous priest-style film. Um, yeah. And he reflects on the role of the priest in the Italian horror film, and he states that they always have a bad time and are always either murderers or pedophiles which I thought kind of encapsulates <laughs> things perfectly. So it's definitely a refreshing change and there's less obvious condemnation here with the Catholic Church. Although there's a slight yeah. bit about, you know, there's there's bits about Catholicism in, in the film, but it's not as overtly negative as you might find in Who Saw Her Die or the likes. Yeah, no, it's not scathing um, criticism of the church as you, as you find in some other films. And moving along, we've got um, Ricardo, who's played by Ray Lovelock. And he's, um, well, he's a playboy, cultured and refined, a, a photographer. The kind of character that would have been played by Jean Sorel in um, in the 60s. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. I always a joy to see Ray Lovelock in a film, isn't it? He's he's always good. He's always good. He... When you see his name, right, I'm in for a treat. I'm in for a good performance. Yeah. Uh, one of Ricardo's most memorable moments, of course, is in the morgue scene where he thinks it's hilarious to lie in a mortuary slab and pretend he's dead. Um, which is probably one of the <laughs> sickest practical jokes I've seen in a shadow. But it's, it's a nice bit of black humour. I always like a bit of black humour. And it perhaps breaks the tension from the previous events that happened before that. Um, yeah. And he, he plays a photographer, of course, which is a very typical profession in these films. And that seems to stem kind of from 1966's Blow Up. Um, and there's a nice payoff with his character and his photography in regards to his quest for the perfect shot. Uh, next up is um, Simona's father, Gianni, who's played by Massimo Serrato, also a well-known face to Eurocop viewers from, from films such as Bloodstained Shadow, Who Killed the Prosecutor and Why, and perhaps most well-known as the Bishop in Don't Look Now. Yeah, which I was quite shocked at when I realised, I didn't actually realise that until I watched the um, the latest release of Don't Look Now, the, that new yeah. 4K edition, so... Yeah, he's very good in both roles. Well, he's very good in that role. He is. Okay. Um, and Gianni's characterised as somewhat of Lothario. Uh, he has a love nest upstairs from Simona's apartment, which the eagle-eyed will recognise as the same house apartment that's used in Four Flies and Grey Velvet, The Fifth Chord, and Black Belly with the Tarantula. Um, he's often absent, so he's somewhat of an enigmatic character, would you say? Yeah, he's, I agree with that. He's probably referenced more than he's seen at times. Um, and we do see him on occasion, you know, appear and he spies on Ricardo at one point um, when, he, when he's in, in Rome, when he should be in Florence, uh, which immediately casts suspicion over his character. And you suspect there's some sort of skullduggery with him, which, yeah, you kind of later find out about. But yeah, he's certainly a bit of a devious character. We don't trust Gianni straight away, do we? We don't. And I'm, I'm sure we'll expand a bit further on that when we discuss Simona shortly. Yes, definitely. Uh, so the other female characters of note are Betty and Danielle. Uh, Betty is Father Lennox's sister who commits suicide out of the blue. And she's obviously the driving force behind Lennox's quest for the truth. And she exists to connect Father Lennox, Simona and Gianni together. And as well as Betty, we have um, Danielle, who's Gianni's lover, and who's a point of contention between Gianni and Simona. And I suppose we might establish a bit more about how these women connect to one another and the roles they play. But to be honest, Betty and Danielle are quite minor characters in the story. Um, the main female role is very much Mimsy Farmer, Simona. Well, if the characters of Betty and Danielle are slightly underwritten and not all that much to say about, there's quite a lot to say about Simona, wouldn't you say? Oh, there's loads to be said. I think her character is really fascinating and there's lots to explore with her in relation to the other characters, um, especially the male characters. It's interesting because the first time we meet her, she's in the morgue and she sees these dead bodies in the in the morgue moving through a distorted kaleidoscopic lens, like a distortion of reality. And again, going back to what I said earlier about her being half established as an unreliable character is quite interesting From because from the get-go, we sort of wonder, can we trust Simona's point of view or is she going crazy? Not only the dead bodies, but with all the men, are they sort of out to get her as well? Or is she just more socially well-adjusted version of Carol from Repulsion? Yeah, well, I think there's this interesting idea throughout the film of, as you said, how reliable she is as a character, as a narrator. Um, and it also ties into this idea of female hysteria, um, which you've touched on there with Repulsion. 
Um, and it's it's prominent throughout the genre and cult cinema and horror cinema in general. And women in these films are often viewed as crazy by their boyfriends and their fathers and various male characters. Uh, their intu- intuition is discarded. Um, they're treated with suspicion. Um, and they're often, often highly medicated and portrayed as having undergone trauma um, and at times feel almost other otherworldly as characters. And I'd say in Autopsy, that's very much the case with Simona. Um, often her fears are dismissed by the male characters around her. And it creates a seed of doubt in the audience as to whether she is being gaslit or whether she's really losing her mind. So you kind of spend the majority of the film in your own mind debating on whether Simona is involved in these murders, as you said. Yeah, if you look at an earlier Jallo, Elicit in a Woman's Skin, you can see some similarities. And in that film, of course, Florinda Balkan ends up being the one who's responsible for the murders. So it wouldn't have been surprising Simona would have yeah, been the I, killer Yeah, and as here. you said, Lindsay Farmer's prior roles really lead you to believe that because we're so used to her playing these characters and she plays those characters so well that you're naturally predisposed to think that's what's going to happen with Simona. Yeah, the word's not actually used in the film but in most 70s film women who doesn't want to sleep with men are usually called frigid but there's some kind of sexual repression going on and you kind of get the sense that there's some sort of underlying trauma with her yeah. don't you it's never expanded yeah, on it's never, but... and it's never explicitly said but i think it's up to the audience to work that out on themselves and i think that's what's quite effective about autopsy i think in another film it would be spelled out in the conclusion that this is why simone is this way is because she went through xyz and it's made her this you know neurotic woman but it's very much just under the surface and it's not completely relevant it's not really relevant at all to the conclusion so it's just another layer in the film that makes it so enjoyable on a second or third watch i don't know if you yeah. want to speculate as to why that is because there are um, moments in the film that lead you to believe certain things yeah if i'm going to speculate i'm going to say that there, there might possibly have been a case of incest from the father because there are a few things that point me in his direction in that for example when he's seen by the pool he's filmed in a way that would suggest perhaps a lover rather than a parent I'd say and when he comes out of the pool he ends up nearly looking up her skirt he kisses her on the mouth a a kiss that seems to go on far too long and he says something like uh, good thing you have no time for men Mm. and there are like little fairly subtle but still to me hints that there might be something that have happened between the two. Yeah as you said that swimming pool scene is really pivotal and coming to that conclusion and it's one that I completely agree with and um, I think it's fair to say from the, from the get-go there seems to be something very odd about the relationship I um, mean he's not presented as particularly yeah. fatherly and he's somewhat of a, a Lothario and a bachelor and I think it's mentioned that she's not seen him in a while so they don't necessarily have a close relationship and yeah they very much greet each other in a sexual manner like lovers rather than father and daughter yeah, and that kind of cringe-inducing scene when the camera almost upskirts her from her father's point of view. It definitely further serves yeah. to highlight that almost sexual dynamic between the two. And you can definitely see that as well in the relationship that Simona has with her father's lover, or I think wife-to-be, Danielle. And Simona seems um, envious yeah. of her, jealous. So that kind of points towards that. And even just the fact that her father is pursuing women that are of a similar background a similar age and a certain similar look um in that morgue sequence when we see when we see betty's body without well she's not got the wig at this point as we've seen her with in the scene with simona and she turns out to be blonde and similar in stature so crispino's linking the two women together through that visual comparison yeah and the other thing that when her father dies there's something that triggers in her i think he's he hasn't actually died but he's very badly injured and in the hospital because that's the first time that she she stands up to a co-worker that that nearly yeah, rapes in a very her violent way. yeah and she has sex with lovelock just just afterwards or around the time when her father is sort of about to pass away yeah no that's that's is a really good point actually yes when you start to see all of that unfurl so yeah another in- indicator that there's something not quite right between the two of them and their relationship it's quite interesting to see the Electra complex on screen and then the shallow um kind of more used to seeing the oedipus complex and i think the, yeah. i've just got a note here that the only other film that springs to mind is flavio mogherini's crime of passion where we see a more overt and um, spell out 
electric complex take place. And it ties in quite nicely to that idea of female hysteria and sexual trauma and neurosis. And yeah, yeah I think there's just one other thing as well about, you mentioned Ray Lovelock's character and how we saw uh, her becoming more sexual with him after after her father's accident. And it's interesting that that scene in The Swimming Pool with the father happens after she turns down Ray Lovelock. He's trying to pursue her sexually. He's trying to get her into bed and she's saying no, but then the next minute you see her being overtly sexual with her dad, which, yeah, raises a few red flags. <laughs> yeah. Just a, a few, few red yeah. flags, yes. She has to put up with some horrible men in her life, Simona. Yeah. I mean, more or less every man that she meets is sexually transgressing towards her. The co-worker with the constant comments and the attempted rape. She's even groped by the corpse in the, in, um, the morgue. Ray Lovelock is quite possibly the worst boyfriend <laughs> ever. Like in, in terms of that joke, in terms of having to fight him off, his constant comments about her being an ice cube. Even the caretaker, who's a peeping Tom. Yeah, it's just your typical women being sexually harassed in a show in a variety of horrible ways. Um, yeah, it's, it's really bad what she has to go through. You do wonder why she's still with um, Regal Fox's character at this point. You do. If there's one thing that, that I can't really piece together is their relationship and sort of how long they've been together. And I would assume it's fairly yeah. new considering why he's in that relationship but you don't get a real sense of how new because in some ways it seems quite established yeah i think yeah no it's certainly there's certainly a gray area there about the timeline and i just i suppose i just think that maybe she has low self-confidence so there's because of her neurosis she's just happy to to stay with him despite the horrible ways he treats her is there anything else that you want to um you want to comment on in regards well, to actually just the, in autopsy sex and death are frequently linked and this point is driven home on several occasions for example in the meeting of betty and simona betty clocks the mortuary photos in simona's coffee table and she rather rudely accuses her of getting her sexual kicks from these sorts of photos which to to you or me we would kind of think that's an odd conclusion <laughs> to make from that um yeah. <laughs> so straight away off the bat we've got this connection between the two and then as you've mentioned in the morgue sequence we see corpse not only come to life but once they're reanimated they begin to copulate with one another and Simone is just frequently played by these nightmarish visions of death and sex intertwined and this really gives an insight into her neurosis and this relationship that she's formed between sexual acts and images of death. And I think we see that play out in some of these failed sex scenes with Ricardo. There's, there's a quite interesting scene there as well with, with Ricardo when they watch the slides from the Paris brothel where where she goes, Nana, where did you get your secret? And she sort of identifies with this prostitute, mm-hmm. which you think is quite far removed from her character. In that moment, it's, it's almost like she's a young young girl or a young woman who wants to emulate another woman. Women often tend to learn sexuality from you know sexual role models or they try and be a certain way because they feel that's how they should be. And it feels quite sad in a way because yeah. she's seeing these pictures of French prostitutes or French sex workers and, and she wants to be that way because she clearly sees that it's something that Ricardo values or it's men value this, but she can't really give into it. She can't give herself. She doesn't know how to be sexual. She's frigid and maybe it is because of that past trauma or she only really sees the sexual connection between her and her father. Again, that's just me speculating, but... It's a really interesting point and one that I wouldn't have made. So no, that, that does make a lot of sense, especially when it's clear that her her mother figure that could potentially have been that person is, is completely absent in the film. She's not even mentioned, yeah, I think, uh, that there's ever been a mother. So it always seems to have been Simona and her father. Yeah, and Simona's taken on that almost motherly role, but she's never learned to be a woman. Um, and I think yeah. when we're discussing the relationship between Simona and Father Lennox, we see that sexual dynamic between Simona and her father play out there. Um, she almost romanticizes Father Lennox. Suddenly, very drastically, she decides that, no, she doesn't love or feel sexual desire toward Ricardo and actual fact she feels it towards father lennox and i find it so interesting that he is father lennox and we have this opinion that she's had relations with her father or there's something sexual there so it's almost like a sly wink at the audience that we've got father of the of the church and then her family father yeah that's another really interesting point i hadn't thought of that but again it, it goes back to show you that there's there's more in these scripts than, than maybe you see at first sight. Because if you just sit and watch this film without really looking a little bit deeper and you just 
watched it for the murder mystery, this thing will pass you by. And um, it definitely did for me the first time that I saw it. But on repeated viewings, I see other stuff. Again, you're giving even more to me here, which makes me appreciate this film even more. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. I think subsequent rewatches of this one especially really lend themselves to these new interpretations and seeing these ideas that I'm sure Crispino has put in these films. I, I don't think we're clutching at straws. I think these ideas are present, but maybe you're more focused on the mystery itself that you don't read so much into these strange family relationships or, you know, Simone as a woman and her progression throughout the film. I, I say progression, but perhaps not progression, but the way her character changes. No, but I, th- I think it's interesting that uh, at least this particular film is more layered because it means that there's recent there are reasons to go back to it and on the sort of the second or the third viewing you can relax a bit more because you know how the sort of the main mystery is going to end up and you can concentrate on on other things instead it's it's even more rewarding when you return yeah, to it i think yeah i definitely agree with that is there anything we need to touch on with her relationship with paul i mean she has feelings for him that he can't reciprocate but he obviously does have feelings yeah. for her I don't I guess it's a safe sort of love isn't it because she can't ever he can't ever return it so she can have these sexual fantasies because they're never going to be enacted on that makes a lot yeah that makes a lot of sense that she moves her feelings from the sexually threatening Ricardo to the person who's not going to present a sexual threat to her because really he's the only person in the whole film that doesn't present a sexual threat to her he does present a threat of violence because he has this outburst so he's not completely harmless but not at least not from a, a sexual point of view for yeah man. and therefore she can kind of romanticize him and if things don't work out she can kid herself a bit about that yeah it's very it's a very safe sort of love or the safe form of desire almost like a teenager idolizing a, a pop star or yeah that's a really good point and to be honest this isn't something I really thought about too much when we were discussing um doing this podcast but actually just in us having this conversation um seeing these comparisons with you know maybe some a woman who's I don't want to say emotionally stunted sense but harsh but you do feel like she's almost teenage in her approach to to approach to things like she's never really she's she's obviously very intelligent she's doing her master's thesis she's proper she's not like a silly kind of frivolous woman or whatever but she's obviously stunted in other ways and sexually stunted and never really grown into adulthood that way times like Crispino is allowing his audience to ruminate on their enjoyment of these films a particular line that struck me was when Danielle said to Simona art is definitely inferior to reality even in horror and sadism which I think is a good quote that you could use across these films in general I think it's forcing us to question our relationship with film and violence in film and whether we view it as art or a reflection of reality and maybe some on some on some level our responsibility as a viewer and how we engage with these images um, and that comes back somewhat to the the documentary style um suicides at the start so for me as a viewer it definitely makes me think about my relationship to these films and how the horror we view on screen applies to the horrors of real life yeah because the violence and the imagery of the crime scene mm-hmm. photos that are used particularly in the criminology museum but are scattered throughout the film it's an interesting contrast between the two because the real life photos are so much more horrible than anything that you see in the film so it's interesting that you mentioned that sequence in the criminology museum because i think it's a really effective scene in the film and one of my favorites alongside the opening it's highly suspenseful and it really highlights the film's propensity for the absurd so we see a variety of mannequins slash models posed in various methods of suicide and i guess they somewhat echo the suicides that take place in the film's opening would you say honestly i hadn't thought about that but you're probably right um i guess there's just something quite unsettling about in general just to see these models posed in such a way another thing about the mannequins there's something a little bit off about them do you think they're real mannequins or are they actors made up to look like mannequins i never actually thought about if they could be actors but i definitely thought there's something very odd and unsettling about them they almost feel yeah but like paper mache humans or something and their faces are can be seen clearly and they've got all these like kind of twisted expressions and filmed in that harsh light it makes it feel all the more frightening yeah 
Um, no, I never thought about that. I'll have to go back and watch it with that in mind because I was thinking like, they're obviously not real. Like the Museum of Criminology wouldn't probably have models of people simulating suicide. <laughs> oh no, it's it, it's it's very good production design yeah. that sequence. I think. Um, so yeah, no, it it could well be um, humans, but I just like how they put them in it and how that was put in the film in the first place. It really makes it feel quite creepy and unsettling. And I think yeah. another director might have filmed that sequence in the dark and utilized shadows and twisting angles and corners and things but I think like with the rest of Autopsy it's obviously um, shot in the film's trademark uh, bright sun-drenched light but I I think as I said that actually accentuates the model's faces and makes it all feel a bit more creepy. It's obviously a a really Mm -hmm. memorable sequence but it also seems to me like there's a little bit of a plot hole here or at least I don't really understand what Ricardo is trying to do to Simona. Is he trying to bring her to the room to frighten her or for her to be shot by <laughs> This is gun. a very good question because I've not considered this. I just, I find it quite difficult to understand Ricardo's motivations at times anyway. Either way, it's quite a laboured mm-hmm. way to do it, to put that letter in the typewriter and then hope that she notices it and for her to go up to that You're room. Right, it's very laboured. Um, it doesn't really make sense. And it's a cool <laughs> sequence. It's memorable. It's just in terms of the film's plot doesn't make the most sense maybe we're both being stupid it doesn't. and missed some more, like pivotal um point there but yeah it's, it's a bit of a stretch i would say but it really doesn't matter because it's such a beautifully executed sequence anyway that you don't really mind either no, way and i think do. this is the thing with these films and what we'll get into in later podcasts is that we're not going to pick them apart for plot holes obviously we're going to comment if we don't feel like we've completely grasped what happened even after five watches but that's part of the magic in a film called the magician <laughs> yeah. um yeah it's it's those little <laughs> moments that they're, they're cool and we like them and they're visually impressive but they might be shoehorned in a bit in terms of the plot but it doesn't matter so you've you've studied criminology have, yeah um i have a degree in criminology which i never use so, yeah. well how about how about putting it to use now do you have anything to say about the sequence or the criminology aspects in general yeah, I'm just of the film my fingers here as i like put on my glasses and go all <laughs> academic um, yeah i suppose like i could talk a wee bit about or i've got some notes about criminology in the shallow and it, it doesn't apply so much to the film but maybe there'll be something there that harks back to that psychosis element and the idea of you know the reasons behind people commit crime even though it turns out the ending of this film is a lot more straightforward than those films that focus more on that psychological element it's interesting that the Rome museum of criminology is featured because criminology and pop psychology are prevalent throughout the genre they're an integral part of the investigatory component of these films as well as often an attempt to understand the reasoning as to why a character commits a violent crime slash murder. So there's a real focus in Shally on the link between psychosis slash psychological disturbance and violent crime. Especially the idea that a significant event in one's life triggers a psychosis that leads to a series of murders that are somewhat rationalised in the killer's mind. Often this relates to childhood or sexual trauma, or sometimes it's even a combination of both. It's interesting to see these ideas presented in Italian thrillers because Italy has a long history with the science of criminology. Italy's overarching connection to the study of crime is through Cesare Lombroso, an Italian sociologist who is considered as the father of criminology. Now, Lombroso examined the relationship between psychopathology and defects of a physical or constitutional nature, this idea of the, the born criminal. And the concept of the born criminal nowadays has largely been rejected. Psychopathology is often examined now in relation to environmental factors, but we often see these two ideas play out in Jolly. A character with diminished mental faculties is often wrongfully accused of a crime. The fact that they're slow or perhaps even just poor with a background of petty crime is enough for them to be a prime suspect. They're often portrayed by characters with a look that's associated with the biological markers of a criminal, according to this theory. And there's an assumption that crime is the domain of the lower classes and you can breed out criminal behaviour as often discussed in these biologically based theories of crime. Um, So without getting too much into detail on this topic, you can actually examine these films from a class-based criminological perspective, which is particularly relevant when we consider the depiction of the jet-set bourgeoisie class that's prevalent throughout the genre. And criminological ideas are often presented throughout these films, whether it's in terms of criminological theories of crime to explain killer motivations, 
uh, technological advancements in forensics, such as the fictional tech in Cat Nine Tails, or the very real advancement presented in the bloodstained butterfly and so forth. Obviously, with autopsy, the criminological component and this idea of repressed trauma or psychological disturbance is somewhat of a red herring, but I thought it'd be interesting to ruminate on criminology in these films as the opportunity presented itself here in terms of the museum. Well, definitely interesting to hear your thoughts and to bring in, like we discussed in episode zero, to bring in these other aspects in regards to these films, to talk about stuff like criminology, to get a wider sense of of these films. The scene in the Criminology Museum is somewhat of a reminder that suicide is often considered to be a crime, especially a crime against God and a way of casting one's soul into disrepute. So by having mannequins pose in these positions as suicide, it's on some level establishing this idea that these suicides sides are perhaps morally questionable. It poses questions over the implications that they might have on the families to believe their child's relation has sinned. Um, you inevitably think about the fallout of this in a Catholic country where suicide is considered to be one of the gravest sins. Um, and obviously this is something that weighs on Father Lennox in regards to sister. Um, so I think this scene is important in bringing another dimension to the film as well and that religious element of suicide and whether these are suicides or murders because if they are suicides, it takes on this other level. So it feels like Crispino is really taking full advantage of Rome's many well-known locations, such as um, the Piazza Navona and Piazza del Popolo, the Spanish Steps. Like, like you commented on, it's all shown in like really stark, bright daylight and you can really tell that it's a really hot august um... yeah because the italians are often on holiday aren't they in august about mid mid august is a um, national holiday so yay yeah so you get a sense that it's fairly empty in rome and there's not all that no, many it's people around tourists and the locals have kind of retreated from the heat feeling yeah. uncomfortable um, and it's kind of driving people insane you get the impression that father lennox is being violent because the the intense heat's driving them into this and the lust is driven by the heat so it's almost like these emotions are flaring um in the heat and the weather and obviously that um, newspaper article that inspired crispino with the suicides going up in august or the the late summer in italy and I didn't, don't think we touched on that, but the architect Francesco Borromini, the main architect who's responsible for the Santa Nesi uh, church in Piazza Navona, the church that's been photographed by Ricardo, he committed suicide in, in the summer of 1667 as well. So it all yeah, ties together. Yeah, it harkens back to those historical details that we were talking about. It's just, yeah, it's just a nice little detail. Yeah. Shall we talk a little bit about the the plot and the the ending uh, of the film? Yeah, we'll talk about the ending because obviously become it's quite conventional as an ending um, compared to the rest of the film. Yeah, um, it is. There's like there's a fake reveal of Father Lennox as the killer, or you're supposed to think that he's the killer when he goes to visit Gianni's brother in Florence. That doesn't quite work. No, to me. It, it doesn't quite land, does it? And I, I kind of feel like the, even Florence's location in that sequence was a bit disappointing. Yeah, I mean they're there, so that it could have been used more. But yeah, as you said, it doesn't it doesn't quite work because we know that there's got to be another another reveal. We know it's too early in the film for that to be the real story, and the way it's done just doesn't feel like a big aha moment. No, it doesn't. So it turns out that. It's um, Ricardo, who's a psychopath. Again, it brings it back to the Jean Sorel comparison I made earlier, that not trustworthy playboy who's sort of very charming and controlled, but also very deliberate and, in this case, completely ruthless and amoral and who's willing to do anything to protect his his fortune. So how do you feel about the, the final vice at the scaffolding high above Piazza well, I have to say, I always love um, a high-rise rooftop scaffolding fight sequence in the shallow so i always think it's a nice way to end things it's very climactic isn't it like like you said it's the reveal isn't i think because you know father lennox isn't isn't the killer so it's either a case of is it simona or is it ricardo and it's obviously ricardo because of the way things transpire so it's not a particularly 
It's not a particularly surprising. No, it's, it's not a particularly surprising ending, is it? It's, it's kind of well, you know, it's it's got to be him because it's not the other people. Um, so you're not like, oh wow, it's you don't have that moment of feeling like you've really been got that you often have in in yeah, other jelly. There's the payoff isn't so much there with the reveal, um, but that's that's fine. And the way it's done, the climax on the roof rooftop, the scaffolding, I think it's pretty effective. He meets his untimely demise. It's quite a brutal ending. And I like the way that all the tourists and locals rush in to see his dead body. And again, because of that stark yeah. bright light, it really accentuates that bloody corpse. <laughs> <laughs> With a bit of brain yeah, matter on the yeah, side. Definitely. But the plot in general, how do you feel about it? Because Ricardo's killed his father because he wanted to disinherit him. And he'd hidden the will in the Bible, which was sold to... Simona's father and who started to blackmail Ricardo how do you feel that works overall I think it's for me the first time I watched it I found it a bit tricky to get my head around um so it kind of took subsequent rewatches for me to really understand how it went from where it was in the beginning with these hallucinatory sequences and Mimsy Farmer's character to this quite conventional um, ending and it does like you said feel very much like the Jean Sorel um, Jali of the late 60s in terms of quite a traditional blackmail plot but because we've got all those other elements I think the payoff it does work but I think I found it to be a wee bit of a letdown the first time I saw it and I think maybe that's why the film has this reputation as not being a great Jalo because maybe people like that almost horror science fiction slant at the beginning and then because it goes into very familiar territory they feel a bit let down by it i mean on the whole it does work but yeah it's i don't know it doesn't quite work for me personally i don't know about you how you feel about how it transpires like we touched on earlier the whole setup with i i can understand ray lovelock trying to get betty lennox close to to gianni to get the book back but for him to pretend to fall in love with with simona is a bit more far-fetched yeah you feel well. like there would be an easier way there yeah do you think he would have preferred if it turned out that simona or um father lennox was the killer with a different explanation or do you think it's fine as it is I mean, I think it's fine as it is because I think there's so much there in the film before you get to the ending. I mean, it's not the first Jalo I've been sort of, I'm not going to say disappointed by, but where the killer hasn't felt like, the reveal of the killer hasn't felt like it's a wow moment. I think there's plenty here to to enjoy and savour anyway, but it feels like it could have used a little bit more work yeah. because there are characters around that, that could have potentially been utilised better to, to keep you guessing for a little bit longer, I think. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I mean, the ending, as you said, is, is not maybe so much disappointing, but lacklustre, perhaps. Yeah. This is still one of my favourites just because of how you get there and all the layers to the film, as we've discussed. So, it, I mean, it is what it is, but you feel like on the whole, it, it's, I don't say largely irrelevant, but... It, it doesn't hamper my enjoyment of it. I just think, you know, there's lots of other elements of the film to enjoy and it doesn't hinge on that reveal. No, I agree completely. It's the journey getting yeah. there that's enjoyable. It doesn't ruin the experience at all. Should we talk a little bit about the music? Yes, definitely. I would love to hear your thoughts on the music. Seeing as this is our first podcast that we've done, I just like to say that I'm personally not very good on music. I find it quite hard to articulate my thoughts on it and Peter really knows the stuff, so I'm really excited for this section in each podcast because I get to hear all these interesting thoughts on music without having to worry about myself. I got a lot to live up to now. No pressure. Yeah, no pressure. I think it's a really beautiful main theme. It's it's a romantic theme, and like most of Morricone's themes, it's got a melancholic feel to it. I think if you compare it to Bruno Nicolai, who's who's obviously sort of the other giant when it comes to, to Jali, I think his themes are generally sort of more upbeat and positive, but you can always feel, or at least I always feel like a an underlying sadness in Morricone's themes, which stand out to me. I think he never puts a foot wrong. Apart from that beautiful and romantic theme with vocals by Edda Deloso, there are also like several quite eerie and dissonant cues. Mm-hmm that accompanies the images of the sunspots. It's not quite Gruppo di Improvisazione Nuova Consonanza. That's quite a name. Wow. 
yeah, it's quite difficult, which was Morricone's experimental group. So it's not that, that kind of level of experimentation. He's turned it down a notch, but this score is still more demanding than the average Eurocult soundtrack. Perhaps not something that the average listener would listen to all the way through and enjoy. I think it's quite reminiscent of the scores that he did for Argento's Animal Trilogy, yeah. as well as A Quiet Place in the Country, Elio Petri's film, and Castellari's Cold Eyes of Fear, which have those elements of dissonant atonal sounds. It's been released on CD and is, it was fairly recently released on vinyl by Arrow as a beautiful cover which was made by Graham Humphreys that was made especially for Record Store Day. So that was a limited edition, but there's a, a retail version of it as well. Yeah, it looks wonderful. As always. So how, how do you feel about the music? Do you Is this a soundtrack that you would listen to? Um, yeah, not? I think I'd listen to it. I mean, I suppose it depends on the mood, doesn't it? It depends yeah. Um, what kind of vitamin? Um, it's really interesting that you've pointed out that Morricone's scores tend to be quite emotional. Um, it's something I've never really reflected on myself. But like, for example, when I got married, I had the music from from Revolver. Wow, that's really bad. I forgot that. Um, and yours was um. And I used uh, the restless theme from Il Grande Silencio for my wedding. So yeah, in itself, it tells us that there is that emotional aspect because obviously we've picked that music based on the kind of feelings that stirred in us. Also, yeah. you know, with, with his horror, um, horror scores, especially something like Autopsy, he really does capture those horror elements. And, and, and this one, I felt the high frequencies and things that are used kind of mirror that almost science fiction style feel yeah. to the film. I mean, I don't know, as I said, I'm not very good at reading music, but there's almost like sighs and cries throughout. Yeah, um, yeah. Definitely. Which made me um, even think of just the Suspiria score. It makes it quite unnerving, I think. Yeah, like um, a kind of heavy, womanly anguish cries from a woman. And then you've got the sound design, which complements that. And you've got lots of unpleasant noises and distressing sounds like dogs barking and traffic and babies crying. And that, again, just it makes things feel a bit unnerving overall. So the film got its censorship visa in early January 1975 and was released in cinemas on January 18, 1975. They actually had a mask that was offered for the screenings, so you could just pull it down uh, over your eyes if you were too scared. It did fairly well at the box office, 494 million lira, which compared to The Etruscan Kills Again, 953 is is less than half of it but it was still quite good box box office for for Jallo very little compared to the best grossing Jallo which was Profondo Rosso and that made a massive 3.7 billion but apart from that it was the best grossing Jallo of the year which is impressive. I mean, as you said, as we've talked about, there's not there weren't loads of Chalet coming out at this point in time, but um, it was certainly yeah, one of the more successful ones then. Yeah, and it easily would have made its money over several times. So quite successful. The Crispina and Bastrade had actually written a script for another film, uh, for another Jalo that wasn't filmed. It was set in the ruins of Pompeii, like Shades of the Dead or Alive there, or The Etruscan Kills Again, because it kept the audience in the dark whether it was a horror film or not. And this time it was planned to have a female protagonist. But they made a film called Frankenstein all'Italiana, 1975, a horror comedy, which is abysmal. I've enjoyed all of Crispino's films apart from that one, and it only made like 25 million lira at the box office, so it did really poorly. It's such a shame that we never saw that shadow realise, because it sounds like it would have been really interesting. Yeah, I mean, both The Dead or Alive and Autopsy are two really interesting films, I think. So it would have been interesting to see him make another one. They actually revised the script or revisited it to try because the the Jalo was going out of fashion. So they tried to sort of rewrite it to get more of a horror film instead with a male protagonist instead of the female protagonist. It was demons and doppelgangers and stuff. And it was quite close to being filmed in 1976 or 1977, but unfortunately it wasn't to be and Crispino's only credits after that was a couple of tv credits as a production manager so unfortunately he didn't get to make any which is a real shame because perhaps if he had the opportunity to either make that shallow or um make the revised version that we would maybe have heard more about him as a filmmaker I think like you've touched on earlier by having only two films that perhaps he's not as known in in the genre because he's not as prolific as some of the other directors working at the time. And he really does deserve to be celebrated and appreciated as a director because he's obviously incredibly talented and he was doing something different and he had his own vision. He wasn't 
just emulating what other people had done, copy and paste type films. I really enjoy the fact that it's not formulaic. The Dead or Alive sort of plays with the conventions of the genre as well, but this one even more so. And it really goes outside the box, I guess, in terms of how you define a giallo, uh, at least for us non-Italians. The lack of the expected giallo elements, I suppose, put some people off. But if you haven't seen this, you really should make a point of watching it and if you have seen it, you should probably rewatch it again because there's a lot to be found. Yeah, here. it's it's really worth um, a revisit if it's a film that you've seen quite a while ago but haven't really given much thought. And I think overall, you know, we're on Twitter a lot and on social media, and I'm guilty of it with a lot of films, but it's perhaps not tweeted and talked about enough. And it'd be nice to put a bit more focus on it. And I guess the reason why is because it's not really had a release in a long time, and it's not gone on to Blu-ray. And I suppose we tend, I'm, as I said, I'm guilty. We tend to favour. And these shiny new releases and the cleaned up images and things but in actual fact yeah we should be going back and trying to highlight these films to people and maybe that in turn will push through a release or might give it more visibility more people might start demanding these titles um i don't know if you know yourself why we haven't had a blu-ray release yet i believe it's a rights issue as always i would assume so i i don't know but i would assume it's something because it was when we, like you mentioned the vinyl that was put out and i got my hopes up when that happened because i thought oh that must mean it's coming to blu-ray and it's been how long and still no word yeah i'm keeping my fingers crossed for both that and pension paura um which was also released on vinyl so i would really like to see both of those films hit blu-ray at some point so even if mimsy farmer isn't a great fan of this film <laughs> right, okay. apparently she thinks it's a bit too gory we both think you should go back for a revisit. So I think that about wraps it up for Autopsy. How do you feel? Yeah, I feel like we've talked enough about the film. I think there's so much more that we could probably say, and I'm sure we'll be kicking ourselves later, but I think we've covered everything that we wanted to uh, for the moment. So since we're a new podcast, we thought we'd have a little competition. We've got a copy of Eric Coley's Forbidden Photos of a Lady Above Suspicion that we'd like to give to one of our listeners. The only thing you have to do is share the news about our podcast with a hashtag FragmentsPod so we can find you and you'll have a chance of winning a copy of that Blu-ray. We'll announce the winner in the next episode. That we will, yes. So if you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate us on iTunes. Um, you can follow us on social media. We are on Facebook, and that's facebook.com slash fragmentspods. You can also email us, which is our email address is fragmentspod at gmail.com. And alternatively, you can find us both on social media where you'll find plenty of Italian genre film related content. And my Twitter handle is at Rachel underscore Nisbet, and yours is... Senior Ward. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this and we'll be back soon. Bye. Bye. Yeah, that'll be alright. I still funny how that was like the hardest part, wasn't it? <laughs>